Amen. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to be picking up at verse 43 today in our study through Exodus. If you have not been with us, we have been walking through this book of the Bible together, uh, seeing the picture of deliverance. Uh, The summary of what's happened so far is that God's people have found themselves enslaved uh, to a wicked king, uh, Pharaoh, and God has raised up a deliverer to go and rescue his people. And that deliverer is Moses. Uh, Moses goes, anointed by God, and goes to Pharaoh and calls the Pharaoh to let the people go so that they can go serve and worship God. Uh, But Pharaoh, time and time again, refuses to let the people go. Uh, We've seen as we walk through this study together how Pharaoh had a hardened heart towards God, a hardened heart towards Moses' words to him. And as Moses calls him to repentance, his heart only grows harder. And so God has now brought a series of plagues and judgment upon Pharaoh, upon Egypt, upon the false gods of the Egyptians, culminating with the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. And now, after that plague, God is now bringing his people out of Egypt, going towards the promised land. But before uh, they go far on that journey, God has some reminders for them. And we're going to read about those reminders today as we look at Exodus 12, 43 through 13, 16. Uh, This is God's inerrant holy word to us. It is his instruction for the church today. So out of reverence for it, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read God's word for us. And this is what we read in the inspired word of God. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is a statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then the Lord said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes. Then the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. 
For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the, fir- all the first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if it, you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem, and when in time your son comes and asks you, what does this mean, you shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. You would pray with me. Father, as we read this passage, uh, there is much here that may be unfamiliar to many of us. Uh, Talks of meals and feasts that we no longer celebrate, perhaps many of us aren't very familiar with. And yet, Lord, what we see here is a picture of the gospel. So I pray, Lord, you would make that gospel clear. And I pray, Lord, that you would prepare us as we prepare to come to your table together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you can see today, we are going to be observing the Lord's table together. And, and we're going to be talking about this as we walk through this passage about how the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table is given to the church today to help us to remember. We need to remember. God often gives us things like this so that we might remember what He has done and what He is going to do. We need these reminders from the Lord because we are prone to forget things. I find as the years go on, and I still prayerfully have some years to go, that I am becoming more and more forgetful. And it's not that I just completely, totally forget something and it's as if I never heard it. It's just this constant reminder, almost annoyance in the back of my mind that I know there's something I need to remember right now. I just can't remember what it is. Perhaps you identify that with that as well. It won't be long before we'll be seeing Christmas movies day in and day out on the TV. And one of my favorites is It's a Wonderful Life. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about that character if you're familiar with him, Uncle Billy, who walks around throughout that movie and he's always got a a string tied around his finger to remind him of something, and yet he can never remember why the string is there. That that is such a picture for us of the Christian life. In fact, I shared a quote with you a couple weeks ago that you've probably forgotten, and so uh, to bring it to mind and remember it, I'll share it again. One Christian historian said this, the Christian life is a combination of amnesia and deja vu. Now we talked about that, how in the Christian life it's this process of coming to a point where we say, I, I know I've forgotten this before. And that's why we need to gather as God's people. That's why we need the instruction of God's Word. That's why we need the daily discipline of opening up the Word of God, because we are people who are prone to forget things. And God in His Word reminds us of the truth we desperately need to remember. And as we come to this passage today, we see yet again, God is reminding His people 
that, that he's going to give them these meals, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as perpetual reminders so that they don't forget what happened in Egypt. So they don't forget how God delivered them, but not just giving them a reminder of what he had done. God also gives him these things so that they might look ahead. And that's important for us to consider this morning. Oftentimes when we talk about remembering things, we talk about reminiscing. And so you're going to be getting together a couple weeks with perhaps family for Thanksgiving, maybe some folks you haven't seen in a while, and at some point you might sit down and have a conversation with an old friend, old relative, and you'll say, well, remember when? And you'll go through these memories and you'll reminisce about things that once happened. When God gives his people the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he's not just calling them to reminisce. And he's not just simply saying, I want you to keep talking about what I did. He's also calling them to look ahead expectantly to what he's going to do. When God tells us to remember things, there's that twofold purpose there. One, he does want us to recall what's happened. But he also wants us to look ahead to what is to come. And we see those components ingrained in both of these reminders that he gives his people. We see them as well when we consider the Lord's table. So what I'd like us to do in our time together this morning as we walk through this passage is to look at what it was God's people needed to remember, how the Passover, how the Feast of Unleavened Bread, how the consecration of the firstborn pointed to those things, but also what was it God was pointing ahead to And then how does that connect to the Lord's table? Now that is what we will do as we walk through this passage today. Beginning with that first point there in your outline. God's people are called to remember that we have been set apart. To remember that we have been set apart. The Passover meal here was already given in its instruction. If you were with us, you remember how in preparation for that tenth plague... God warned his people that death was going to come. And death was going to come to every household. That death would come either in the form of them slaughtering a Passover lamb and taking its blood and putting it on the lintel in the doorpost so that the Lord would pass over their homes. Or if they didn't do that, that death would come as it did to the Egyptians' homes in the death of their firstborn. And we see this as the tenth And final plague. And God gave instructions to his people as to exactly how they were to do this. And we talked about that as we walked through that passage. And how this this pointed towards the gospel very clearly. That this whole picture of death passing over because of the blood of a lamb that was spread on the doorposts. That's a picture of the gospel, isn't it? And we see John the Baptist making that proclamation when he sees Jesus coming. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this meal that God gave his people, that this reminder he gave them, not only would remind them of something that had taken place in the past, it would also point towards something coming in the future. But here in Exodus 12, 43, God gives further instructions. And notice what he says. He says there that in observing this Passover, no foreigner shall eat of it. Uh, Here he is speaking, I believe, not just of another race and tribe. He's speaking of those outside of the covenant community. People were brought into the covenant community of faith through circumcision. And that's why he reiterates that time and time again in this passage. 
And so as he's talking about the foreigner, he is not just speaking of those who were not ethnically, nationally, the Hebrew, Israelite people. He's speaking of those who are outside that community of faith. And we can gather that as you continue through the passage. Because he says, for example, verse 44, Every slave may eat after you have circumcised him. We know from our study in Exodus that when the Hebrew people left Egypt, a mixed multitude went with them. There were many servants that went with them. There were many Egyptians that went out with them. And so in this mixed multitude that goes out, God has now given this instruction as to who can and who cannot eat this meal. And what it boils down to is those who are in the covenant community. And so he says again, no foreigner or hired worker, but all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Sojourners can keep it if they are circumcised, if they've been brought into this covenant community. Now, stepping back, why is this important? Why is it so significant who eats this meal? In fact, why is it important that God would give instructions about who is to eat and who's not to eat a meal? Well, you have to consider the context here. In the ancient context, meals were something that you invited people to. Still, in many parts of the world, if there's a foreigner, if there's a sojourner, if there's someone coming through a village, coming through an area, you were to be hospitable and to invite that person into your home. I've had the opportunity to travel to multiple continents, to, to many countries, and one consistency I've seen in all the places I've traveled is that people around the world are so hospitable and that people who don't speak the same language as I do, uh, people who I am the foreigner in their land, are so quick to open up their home and invite me in for a meal. And God's people were called to do that very thing. In fact, as you read through the Old Testament, you see God directing his people to reach out to the stranger, reach out to the sojourner. In the New Testament, the church is called to be hospitable, were to reach out to people and to invite them in. But in this case, God says this meal is not for the outsider. This meal is not for the person who's outside of the covenant community. Why is that? It's because this meal had special significance. This meal stood as a reminder of what it meant to be in the covenant community of faith. This meal stood as a reminder to the Hebrew people of how they had been delivered by the Lord, by the blood of the Lamb. You see, when we read Exodus, we don't find that the Lord just indiscriminately passes over the homes of a bunch of people because they're Hebrews. He passes over each home because the blood of the Lamb was there. And so God gives this meal to these families as a perpetual reminder that their faith is in the Lord and their trust is in the Lord and they have been saved by the Lord through the blood of the Lamb. And so it was a special meal for that community of faith. And friends, we have a meal like that today. We are called to be a hospitable people. We're called to have our doors wide open. We're, we're called to let anyone come in here. We don't stand at the door of the church and say, well, let me see your membership card before we'll let you in. Well, we'll let anybody come and worship with us and feast on the Word of God with us. But we do have a meal that's set apart. And that's the one that we have before us today. This meal isn't just for anyone. The Lord's Supper is specifically for people who have repented 
and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's table is a reminder to us of the sacrifice that Christ made that we might have life. It's a reminder to us of the lamb that was slain in our place. And so this meal is something we observe as brothers and sisters in the faith, as sons and daughters of God, understanding that that not everyone is in that community yet. But that invitation is there through the gospel. And once we respond to the gospel, we come to this table together. And that's something we need to consider every time we come to the Lord's table. Why we are coming to it. What it is that unites us around this table. So so we don't come to this table because we all have the same last name. Although, probably a number of you do have the same last name. we, We don't come to this table because we all share the same opinions or, or the same politics. We don't come to this table because we all voted the same this week. We don't all come to this table because we're of the same nationality or skin color or race. We come to this table because we are a part of a more important thing than any of that. We're a part of the family of God. And we have been bought into that family. And so I realize it's a popular notion to consider that everyone in the world today is a child of God. But you do realize the scripture says that's not true. That that we become children of God through belief in Christ, through repentance in faith. And that's when, as we read in Romans earlier, we are adopted into this family. And so friends, this meal for us then is so significant because it's a meal when brothers and sisters in the faith come together and gather together around what it is that unites us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We read this reminder in 1 Peter 2 where we're told, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, this table for us today is a reminder of what citizenship really matters. We are citizens of an eternal kingdom. I don't know about you, but I'm growing weary of hearing all the talk about the politics of the day. I was hopeful that all the ups and downs and woes and everything else would pass once we went through the election, but it seems they just carry over. And I think principally here's the reason. Because for so many in the world today, this is all they've got. And friends, as followers of Jesus Christ, should we not look different than the world today? Should we not be those who hold our heads high because we're a part of a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, because we're sons and daughters of the king and his kingdom never ends? Because we don't have to worry about four years or eight years or 12 years from now and who's going to vote for who, but we are the ones who have been elected by this king to be a part of his kingdom. And this meal is a reminder to us that it's not by our efforts that we become members of that kingdom. But we're made citizens of that kingdom 
Because what Christ has done for us, our perfect Passover lamb, and as a result, friends, we are then set apart. And that is such a freeing thing because we, we don't need to worry and we don't need to be anxious and we don't need to moan and groan day in and day out about the ups and downs of this world because we belong to another kingdom. And while we are here in this temporal kingdom, this temporal nation that God has brought us into, we are to be lights in the darkness. But be careful that you don't focus more on the darkness than you focus on the light. And that is a reminder for us of what we're going to experience at this table. Second, we're to remember that we have been rescued. We're to remember that we've been rescued. So, so the Passover meal reminded us that we're set apart, we're a chosen people, that the Feast of Unleavened Bread then was a reminder for God's people that they had been rescued. If you weren't with us, just as a summary, a reminder here, how this comes about is as God's people are preparing to leave Egypt, he tells them to leave with haste, to, to just leave quickly. When it's time to go, it's time to go. And they don't have time for the bread to rise. They would use leaven much like we use yeast, and that was a process to make the bread. You take a little leaven from yesterday, a little uncooked dough from yesterday's bread, and you put it in today's bread, and that would make the bread rise. But he calls them when they leave to have this, this remembrance, this feast of unleavened bread as a reminder to them that they were thrust out of Egypt. That there, there wasn't time to make preparation. That there wasn't time to make bread to take with them. God was suddenly, quickly delivering them. And that was an important reminder for God's people as well. Because as you may have noted in our study, the Hebrews spent 430 years in Egypt. Let's just try to get your mind around that for a second. You go back 430 years from today, you'll find yourself in 1586. Can you imagine what it would have been for, for your family, for your people, for generations, going back to 1586, for you to be strangers in a strange land, for much of that time for you to be slaves to a foreign king, and for you and your parents and your parents' parents to have been born in that slavery and to be prepared to die in that slavery. 430 years. And now God is going to deliver his people and he's going to deliver them with haste. He's going to deliver them quickly and he's going to call them out. And I don't know about you, but... Oftentimes when we talk about God doing something quickly, and yet it seems like things are moving slowly, we, we begin to wonder if quickly is going to come as quickly as we thought quickly was going to come. So, so, so we, we talk in the church today, for example, about Jesus returning. And maybe you have taken some time to study that in the Scripture. Maybe you've come to points in your life where you've thought, man, this is it. Christ has got to return now. Oh, I bet He's coming soon. But then you lay your head down at night and you get up the next morning and you had not come back yet. Or maybe something totally different. Maybe you are suffering and you have been suffering. And when you started to suffer with whatever affliction it is, you cried out to God, God, would you bring healing? Would you deliver me or this person out of this situation? And you prayed expectantly 
for God to deliver. But then as days go by, months go by, years go by, and nothing changes, well, then you start to kind of lose that expectancy. You start to kind of live as if deliverance, healing, Christ's return, as if these things aren't going to happen so quickly. And yet God's word says that Christ will come like a thief in the night. His word says that, that he's going to come in such a way that you're not going to be expecting it. You're not going to be thinking it's today and he's going to come. That this meal that they had of this unleavened bread, every time they ate it, they were reminded when God decides it's time to do something, God's going to do something in his time. And God's not on our timetable. Man, I, selfishly, I wish he was on my timetable. I wish I could take my phone out and say, God, let's see, uh, yeah, this would be a good time for you to do that. Yeah, this, this, this right, Lord, just right, yeah, this would be a great time for this to be done. It'd be great even to look at that and know, okay, all right, God, maybe you're not going to do it then, but maybe you'll do it now so I can look ahead to that, I can, I can plan for that. You know, kind of like we, as children, we look towards that, that Christmas morning, you know, we, we know it's coming. And as the day gets near, we get more excited about it. But sometimes as God's people... We forget some things are coming. And because they haven't come and we don't know the day they're going to come, we don't know the hour they're going to come, we kind of live as if they're not going to come. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe even as someone who's not a follower of Christ. Maybe you've heard other preachers and Christians talk about this whole idea of judgment and God's wrath and, and even death and how you need to, to be ready Maybe you've heard multiple times the gospel that, that we were all born in sin. That, that like our father, Adam, in the garden who rebelled against God, he was, he was removed then from the presence of God and, and removed from that garden. And, and there's that distance between us and God now because of our sin. And the wages of that sin, according to the scripture, is death. We, we deserve to be eternally separated from God, but not just that. We deserve to have the very wrath of God poured out on us for our sin but that God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us that there's good news in response to the bad news and we can repent and place our faith in Jesus and maybe you have heard that and heard that and heard that and your thought is well yeah yeah I need to do that later you know? I want to have some fun right now I'll never forget, as a pretty new believer myself, my freshman year of college, I sat down with a guy that lived in my dorm. His name was Chip, and I started talking to him about the gospel, and I was just telling him what I what I just learned and responded to myself. I couldn't imagine why everybody in the world wouldn't want to respond to this. And as I talked to Chip about the gospel, his response was, in essence, this. Richard, I, I believe that is true. And I'm going to respond to it later. Because <laughs> right now, I want to have some fun. 
Right now, I've got some things I want to do. And after I do the things I want to do, yeah, after I graduate and get married and have kids and have a family, then, then I'll go back to the church and go back to Christ and I'll do all that in my time. But in my time right now, I want to do some things. And if I do what you say I need to do, I'm not going to get to do what I want to do. It wasn't long before Chip's life ended unexpectedly. Friends, I, I don't know how many days I have left. And I sure don't know how many days you have left. But, but let's not forget that, that one day, we won't have any more days left. And, and that whether it's 50 or 60 or 70 years from now, under hospice care that you breathe your last breath, or it's on the way home today, that that day is coming. And God is gracious to you and I right now. And giving us this moment, this window to say, repent. Because when it comes, there's not time for the dough to rise. And God gives this reminder to his people as he gives them this unleavened bread. That, that he, he rescued them when it was time. But remember, as he rescued them, what did he also do? He brought judgment on the Egyptians. And so we see quickly God bringing both his wrath and his rescue. And we see as well that unleavened bread served another purpose because it was a reminder to God's people that as God was taking them out of Egypt, he didn't want them to take Egypt with them. They, they had lived under the influence of pluralism, this plurality of, of pagan gods. We've talked about that and how the, the different plagues that came upon were ju God's judgment against all these false gods of Egypt. They had the gods of the Nile and the gods of the sun and gods of all these different things that they worshipped. And, and, and all that had had an influence on God's people. 430 years. We, we, we worry about our kids going out for the night and what type of influence might be on them in a few hours. God's people for 430 years are under the influence of the Egyptians. And you better believe it affected them. And we'll see this in our study. Remember, they're not going to get far from where they are, and they're going to wonder who, who's going to lead them. Moses isn't going to be there. He's going to be up the mountain. And then they're going to feel kind of lost for a moment. What are they going to do? They're going to melt down their gold in the image of a golden calf. Why? Because that's exactly what they saw all around them when they were in Egypt. They're going to go right back to it. And so God, when he calls them to go and not take any leaven, that, that leaven is symbolic as we see throughout the scripture of wickedness and sin. And he's saying, I want you to leave Egypt, but I don't want you to take Egypt with you. Because I'm calling you to a land of promise. And in calling to that land, I'm calling you out of something. And the same is true for us in response to the gospel today. Galatians 1, we read, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us, deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Colossians 1, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So when we come to this table together, 
we're not just reminded of what God rescued us from, we're reminded of what He's rescued us to. And that He has called us to, to, to leave some things behind. Have you left some things behind? I find sometimes as Christians we like to sit around and, and reminisce about the things we left behind. Sometimes we'll sit around and talk about it as if it was something good and something pleasing. And even to, to hear some believers talk about what it is they used to do, you, you have to stop and wonder, why'd you stop doing it? Why aren't you doing it right now? Because you're falling asleep in church, but you're excited about that. I'm not suggesting any of you would ever fall asleep. But if you're sleeping, you wouldn't hear it anyways. But we, we tend to talk about our sin like the Hebrews talked about Egypt. We're, we're going to get to the point, remember, what does God call it? A house of slavery? We're going to get to the point where they're going to say, oh man, it was kind of nice back there. We, we had food and it was good. I mean, just imagine that for a second. If you today were to sit down with someone who was enslaved in a, in a foreign land, to a foreign king, they were enslaved and they were beaten and they saw family members die in their slavery. And you were there at the airport as they were rescued and they came here and we moved them to Bloomfield and they had food and clothing and, and freedom. And you're sitting down over a meal with them and they start to say something to you like, you know, it was kind of nice back there in slavery. How would you respond? I would look at them like, are you, are you on something right now? Well, what do you mean it was nice? And yet that's exactly what we do as Christians today. We look back on our slavery to sin and we start to romanticize it. And we start to talk highly of it. And deep down, when we might not say it this way, we start to want to be back there or wish we could have go back and relive some of it. And so what our tendency then is to do is to kind of take it with us. And so if you're here today thinking that, that, that your salvation is secure because you walked an aisle or got baptized or, or joined a church, and that you're secure, and, and yet at the same time, you have brought so much of your old life with you that it's indistinguishable between who you were and who you are, and the sin you did then is the sin you do now, just maybe more in private, and life's not really changed much for you, and there's no real fruit of your salvation, and you spend time longing for what used to be and wishing you could do more of it, if that's you today, and you are secure in any way that you're saved, friends, you are a fool. If you are resting somehow in this notion that because one day you said one thing or prayed one prayer and now you're fine, but there's no fruit of your salvation. Friends, you may have heard it before. If there's no fruit, there's no roots. And you are lying to yourself. 
And I don't want to join in that lie with you. We need to be concerned enough about our salvation that we actually look to the scripture and see what is our salvation based in. And when we understand truly what it's based in, in that perfect Passover lamb and in repentance and trust in him, then we find that when Christ redeems us, Christ redeems us not in part but in whole and he makes us new. And he calls us out and he sets us apart. And it doesn't mean that we become perfect people all of a sudden. But we certainly start trusting in the one who is perfect. So, so don't hear me this morning saying that, 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 that you've got to work to save yourself. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Works don't save us, but salvation should lead to works. Jesus said, you know a tree by its fruit. And if you're concerned for a moment this morning, as you look at the fruit in your life and it's absent, then I would encourage you to take seriously the call to repent and truly trust Christ. Because what we find in the heart of the gospel is this, this reminder, point three. This reminder that we have been redeemed. And we see this as well. There's two reminders of things that have already been covered. Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Now God incorporates something new as he, talks to them, as he calls them to consecrate the firstborn. In summary here, the, the firstborn in the ancient world had very had significance, had importance. And so you may have heard before uh, people talk about in the ancient world or some of these things how uh, the oldest son was the one who inherited and that might seem like favoritism towards you. And if you've got more than one kid, you know we're not supposed to have favorites. And we've got four kids. I can't say who's my favorite. They're all my favorite. Sometimes. This whole idea of the firstborn getting the inheritance, it wasn't because the firstborn was the favorite. It was because in the ancient world that the firstborn was the representative of the entire family. And so when you read this talk about the firstborn, what you're reading is consecrate the firstborn. Why? Because you're consecrating the whole family to me. And so notice what God tells them to do here. Whatever's first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast is mine. You're to set them aside for me. And then he gives specific instructions in verses 11 through 16 of how that's to take place. He says, when you go into the land, set apart for the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. And you know how they became the Lord's? They were sacrificed. And so God said to his people, that these animals that you have, you, you were to sacrifice the firstborn male because it's all mine. Now that might seem a little different for us. We're not apt to go sacrifice, you know, we cat had a bunch of cats, and so I want the cats to be the Lord, so I gotta kill the first one. Or all of them if you don't like cats. So just here, here's something that might help you, okay? God tells us to bring our first fruits to him. And so we infer from that that when we give, for example, uh, that we're to give of the first. So we get, we get paid, we, we make a profit, whatever it is we might have, that's income, that's resources, we're then to give first out of that to the Lord. Very practically speaking, because if we wait to give last, Oftentimes, there's nothing left, is there? 
you know, the end of the month has a way of just eating up everything along the way. And so we, we give first to the Lord. Now, when you give to the Lord, you, you should not give with the perspective that, okay, Lord, uh, this, this small percentage is yours, and this larger portion is mine. So, Lord, here's, here's my offering, my, my tithe. Here's my percentage. You do what you need to do with that. And now I'm going to do what I need to do with this. And yet, I'm guessing that's how many of you have thought about that. That's how I've thought about it. But here's what that is. It's the same thing in Exodus 13. When we give of our first fruits to the Lord, we're saying, Lord, here is my offering representative of all of it. I'm giving you this first fruit. I'm giving you this firstborn male from my livestock. I'm giving you this first percentage of my income to note, to recognize that all that I have is yours. You have dominion over all of it. And so when God calls them to offer up this firstborn of the animals, he's saying that everything you have is mine. But notice there's an exception. Verse 13, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. See, donkeys were different. You may have heard talk in the Old Testament, God's people, there were clean animals, there were unclean animals. There was a distinction made, and so many of these animals that were sacrificed were considered clean. Donkeys were considered unclean. That, that should not be a stretch of your imagination if you've been around a donkey. I looked at my Facebook feed yesterday. I can see that deer season is open. Everybody's got their deer. You know, Bambi's mama and daddy right there. I didn't see one picture of somebody holding a donkey tail. Did anybody go hunting for donkeys yesterday? Has anybody in this room ever eaten? Has anybody here ever eaten a donkey? Don't say yes if you have. I was in one of the poorest countries on the planet Earth back in February. In a section of the world in West Africa where they literally have nothing. And there's donkeys walking around and they won't eat the donkeys. That they're considered unclean. And to God's people, donkeys were unclean. They were utilitarian. They were of use. They were pack animals. And so you had a choice. When you had that firstborn donkey, you can't sacrifice it like you do the other animals. But here's your choice. You can break its neck and kill it, which is going to be problematic because you actually need that donkey to do work. Or notice what he says. Or you can redeem it. You shall redeem it with a lamb. You, you could take that unclean animal and in its place you could offer up a lamb as redemption. Now, if you're not going there already, notice what he says next. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So as soon as God gets done telling his people how they need to sacrifice something in the place of these nasty, unclean donkeys. What does he throw in with that? Man. Now, now don't, don't, don't think for a second here. God's not telling his people to sacrifice their firstborn child. There were pagan nations around them that would do that very thing. But notice what he's telling them. 
In the same way that you offer up redemption for the donkey with a lamb, you offer up redemption for your children with a lamb. And so God would say to him, for your firstborn son, the representative of the family, to dedicate that son to me, there must be the sacrifice of a lamb. Just like the donkey needs to have the lamb die in its place, or you need to break its neck. You see a picture coming into focus here? Something born unclean in need of redemption. That which redeems it is a lamb. Friends, this, this is pointing us towards the gospel. That, that you and I were born as sinners. We were born unclean. And we need someone to redeem us. We need somebody to purchase us. We need somebody to rescue us and save us. And that's what the perfect lamb of God did for us. And so as we come to this table, we're reminded, not just that we're set apart and we've been rescued, we're reminded that we've been redeemed. And we're reminded of the price of our redemption. And so I want to invite you now to consider those things as we come to this table together.